Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, good to see you all uh, this morning and to be here to uh, hear God's word. Uh, there's an outline of my talk in the outline that you received on, on the way in, if, you, if that helps you to follow where we're up to. And let's pray again for God's help as we do that. Father God, uh, thank you that uh, we can hear your word read and preached this morning. As we do that, uh, please plant your word on our hearts. Please may it dwell within us. And please may it bear much fruit in our lives to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the birth of a child. Uh, it's a moment of great pride uh, for the parents and for the grandparents. Um, you probably guessed I was going to start the sermon this way today. I've been a grandparent now for just shy of six months. Um, and it's definitely one of those moments, one of those times of pride. There's great joy at the birth of a child, and there's great joy watching every little step of development of that child, and you can't help but share your joy with others, sharing many photos and videos. Uh, you indeed may have been the victim of one of my many proud moments of showing you in person yet another image of this fine young man. <clears throat> but Mary and Zechariah, um, whom we hear about today, they received a message from an angel about the child to be born um, in their families. Now, I can't claim that for my grandson. And for them, that could have been a moment of even greater pride. But we'll see today there's something else much bigger going on that they were aware of. They praised God for the birth of a child because they knew this was a big occasion, not just for them, but a big occasion in history. And today, as we look at the way they express their faith in praising God as their saviour, uh, I trust we'll be encouraged to join them in their joy and in their praise of God. We heard, we heard last week of the heavenly messenger's words to Zechariah and to Mary about the birth of their children. They were told that God was about to do something wonderful and surprising to save his people. Zechariah heard that his wife, who'd been unable to conceive all her life and who was now well along in years, would actually give birth to a son and that he was to be named John. And John would bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He, he would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And then Mary, we saw last week, Here's the even more surprising message that she will conceive as an unmarried woman. And it's kind of hard for us in our culture to imagine the shame that's attached to that for Mary, that she'll become pregnant outside of marriage. And on top of that, she's told that the, the overwhelmingly uh, amazing news that by God's power, she will give birth to a holy child who will be called the Son of God. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And as the story unfolds in this chapter, the events that occur around Mary and Zechariah continue to point to that being a time when God was at work to do something wonderful through the birth of these children. In verses 39 to 45, first of all, we look at Mary. Mary hurries off immediately after the news of her conception, uh, hurries off to Elizabeth. Before she could have any confirmation in her own body whether she was pregnant or not, she hurried off 
to visit her relative Elizabeth. The angel had told Mary that Elizabeth, who was said to be unable to conceive, is now in her sixth month of pregnancy. Now, as Mary hurries off, we might well wonder how she, how she processed the news of her pregnancy from the, from the angel, from her own pregnancy from the angel. Mary had been chosen for a gigantic, unprecedented and unrepeatable task to give birth to the Son of God. What would this very ordinary Jewish girl do with the news? How would she believe it? How would she continue to believe this word without losing her nerve or even crumbling under the weight of such news or without losing faith or without having a proper humility before God about such an experience as this? And maybe for a little while, at least, after the angel who gave the message had left her, her first temptation might well have been to think that she'd just imagined the whole thing. There was no angel who appeared with that message at all. But God has wonderfully ordered everything to strengthen Mary's faith. So wonderfully, when she arrives at Elizabeth's home, she found that her relative was also miraculously pregnant just as the angel had told her. And she found that Elizabeth, inspired by God, already knew of her pregnancy without hearing about it from Mary. And she said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child that you bear. And she addresses Mary as the mother of my Lord. And the whole account is, is filled with the inspiration and direction of the Spirit of God in this, at this time in Israel's history in what in what he said and what happens. Elizabeth even reports that her unborn child leaped in the womb at the sound of Mary greeting Elizabeth. And so, and so Mary's faith is strengthened and then she breaks out in praise and prophecy about God's salvation. And we'll come to that soon, but we'll have a look first at what happens with Zechariah. So we also see that the events surrounding Zechariah point to this being a time when God was at work doing something wonderful through the birth of these children. In verse 57, Zechariah and Elizabeth's child is born and they have a son and the neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown Elizabeth mercy and they share her joy. And we saw last week Zechariah was struck dumb for not believing the word of God through the angel that his wife would conceive. And then when his service at the temple had been completed and he makes his way back home, not long after that, his wife uh, had conceived. And surely at that point, he believed God's word to him, but he remained dumb. And then the child is born. Surely any possible lingering doubt must have gone by then, <laughs> but he still remained dumb. And all that remains is for Zechariah to name his child John, uh, as he had been commanded. And we anticipate that he'll get his voice back. Now, Luke could have simply told us that that's what happened, that, that Zechariah did as he was told, named his child John, and we would have seen his faith and obedience and the story would have reached its climax. But we get more than that. Right through verses 57 to 66, we get this focus on the neighbours and the relatives. How will the neighbours and the relatives respond and once they hear John say that he will break from the normal tradition of naming his son after his father's name, that he'll name his child John, as the angel told him, we hear in verse 65 
They were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. And as they talk about these things, as Luke puts it, they would have heard, don't forget, they would have heard from Zechariah, not only that the angel told him to name his son John, but that this baby was destined to be the forerunner of the Messiah. This story wasn't just the story of the birth of an ordinary child. It was the story um, of, a, of a different order with, shake, with earth-shaking implications. And so in verse 66 we read, Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? And you see, you see if it was true then these neighbours and friends of Zechariah the priest and his wife Elizabeth were actually standing on the verge of the Messianic age, the coming of the Messiah. And Zechariah's child would preach to all Israel to prepare them for the coming of that Messiah. But was it true? After all, most parents think their first child's somehow special and they dream up a marvellous future for it. Perhaps elderly parents like Zechariah and Elizabeth and were especially prone to doting on, on their child. Could it be that Zechariah was just getting carried away by pride, uh, a bit like me showing my photos of uh, my grandchild? Maybe he was exaggerating, maybe he was fantasising. Well, time would tell. But of course, we as readers of Luke's Gospel know how it unfolds, and Luke tells us here, the Lord's hand was with him. Um, God was doing something surprising and wonderful through this child. And so um, the climax of Zechariah's story isn't just the naming of his son John. (laughs) It's the expression of his faith, um, just as it is with Mary as well. It wasn't just he immediately named his son John. The climax is his words of praise and prophecy that show he understands this moment as a wonderful time of God's salvation. So we come to the words of praise now, the words of Mary, the words of Zechariah. In Luke's Gospel, we have not only the story of the events just before the birth of Jesus and and his forerunner John, not just the story of their birth, but we have these words of praise and prophecy from Mary and Zechariah, and I think that makes this this account quite special. And they recognise this moment as one when God has come to save his people and so they can't help but break out into exuberant praise to God as their saviour. And I want to show you here just briefly um, one thing about their focus and then three main themes in these two, in these two songs. So, um, so one thing about their focus, it's striking in Mary's song that never once does she mention that she's going to be the mother of the Son of God. Of course, that's the reality that lies behind the song. But the way she refers to this great fact shows us what her focus is. She doesn't focus on herself. Yes, she's unique. She bore a a child who is the Son of God. No one else could claim that. But her focus is on the implications of the fact, not on herself. And similarly, in Zechariah's song, there's 12 verses, but the first eight go by without him even mentioning his son at all. (laughs) And then there are two verses about his son in verses 76 to 77. And then there's another couple of verses that again revert to something else. (laughs) So Zechariah is convinced that there's something happening that's far more important than the birth of one prophet. 
He knows that his son would point to the Messiah. And so that's what he does too. He points to the Messiah. He looks at his own son and he realises that very soon someone infinitely more important than his own son is going to appear. And that's the focus of his praise. We saw the same kind of thing um, with his wife, Elizabeth, when she greeted Mary. All the focus was on Mary's child um, to be, um, not her own. So what are those key th- the, th- the three key themes um, that, that are shared by both of these expressions of praise, uh, Mary's and Zechariah's? Firstly, the obvious one is they express exuberant praise to God for what he has done as saviour. In Mary's song, it starts, doesn't it? My soul glorifies, my soul magnifies um, the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Her joy arises because in acting towards her as God has, God is acting as her saviour. My spirit rejoices in God, my saviour, she says. Notice that the bearing of a child who will be called the son of God, bearing a child who will be the saviour of the world, doesn't change her status before God beyond that of anybody else. She still regards herself as someone who needs to be saved like the rest of humanity. And she says, all generations will call me blessed. And she doesn't add, oh, because I'm to be the mother of the Son of God. <laughs> no, she adds, because the Mighty One has done great things for me. In other words, what God has done in providing a saviour, rather than what she is, um, that is what is filling her mind, and that is what her mouth overflows in praise of. She prays, she rejoices in God, her saviour. In Zechariah's song, he too expresses exuberant praise to God for what God is doing um, as saviour. Um, Phil read it for us before his prayers. Verse 68, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Zechariah recognises the one to come after his son, whom his son would point to, will bring a long-awaited salvation of God's people. At the end of the song, he says that the sunrise from above is about to dawn, that the long night for Israel um, and the world is over. God is intervening in history to save his people. And the language throughout the poem is rich with words from throughout the Old Testament about God's salvation, that when, when God comes to save his people, it will mean redemption. It will mean salvation and deliverance from slavery and freedom to serve God. It will mean forgiveness of sins and therefore freedom from the fear of death and it will bring peace, rich with words of salvation from the Old Testament God has intervened. He sent a mighty saviour from the house of David, David, so there's exuberant praise given to God who saves. Secondly, both of these songs praise God that the coming of the Messiah shows God's mercy for his people. So we notice God's mercy as a theme in Zechariah's song, verse 72. He's come to show mercy to our ancestors. And then in verse 78, the coming of the Messiah is an expression of the tender mercy of God 
And then in Mary's song from verse 50, she moves from what God has done for her to how God has shown his mercy from one generation to another. And we've already seen how when she spoke of God dealing, God's dealings with her, she, didn't, she did it with no sense of self-importance or self-centeredness. So we might conclude oh, that Mary was just a remarkably humble person, mightn't we? But it's more than that because she grasps that she and all people need God's mercy. When we get to verse 50 and beyond, it's clear that she understands God's dealings with her as just one example of God's dealings with all of his people. That God's dealings with her were in one sense utterly unique, but in another very important sense to Mary, it was just an act of God's mercy. And that's the way that God has dealt with his people down throughout through the ages. Verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. She doesn't feel that her case is a special case of needing mercy. No, her eyes are on how over and over again from one generation to another, God has shown his mercy to his people. And then she continues in verses 51 to 53 to speak poetically of God's mercy, which she has seen in her own case, which she has seen in the history of Israel, which she anticipates will be shown through the birth of God's son. God's choice of her is merely one example of what God always does, has done and will do. He's a God who in mercy um, saves people. And for mercy to be mercy... It's not got to do with us attracting God's attention and favour. Mercy is shown to the undeserving. And so in these verses, mercy bypasses all of the usual distinctions that we so easily make between people based on wealth or the family you're born into or the level of education or the influence that you have. See it in verses 51 to 53. When God saves, he is always scattering the proud he's putting down princes he's sending the rich away empty and at the same time he's exalting the lowly and he is feeding the hungry she uses poetic language to describe the experience of God's people down through the ages um, through the centuries people like Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 who found it to be true in her situation um, used very similar expressions in her song when she dedicated her son Samuel at the temple, um, even though her situation was different to Mary's. Mary is aware that for the purposes of bringing God's son into the world, he chose her as a little lower-class girl um, from some obscure family to be the mother of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and that she is just one example of what God always does, has done, and will do. God is holy. Mary acknowledges that in verse 49 before she mentions mercy. And in his holiness, God has the right to cut us off from him. But thankfully, God has mercy, and he has shown that in giving us his son, Jesus. And by trusting in God and his promises... He restores us, he redeems us. He cuts off sin, but he doesn't cut us off. He delights to show rich and tender mercy 
and he extends that mercy to all who fear him. And God's mercies, they endure. He's ever faithful and he's ever sure. So the songs of Zechariah and Mary praise God for his mercy. Finally, um, the songs both praise God that he is fulfilling his promises. So in Zechariah's song, in verse 70, it was long ago the prophets first preached the promise of God. In verse 73, God swore his covenant on oath to Abraham. And since then, faith had often been tempted to say that those old prophecies were only myths. But God continued to speak through his prophets and now that faith in his promises is now vindicated. A saviour is about to come and Israel will be saved from all their enemies. And in Mary's song, in the last couple of verses, verses 54 to 55, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. It had been 2,000 years since God's promise to Abraham. It had been 400 years since the last prophet in Israel. And any rational person in Mary and Zechariah's day would say, God must have forgotten us. But now Mary and Zechariah break out in praise for God has kept his promise, for no word from God will ever fail. And you know, as we think about Mary, hundreds of times since her childhood in her home, in the synagogue, at religious festivals, she would have heard about God calling out Abraham and his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 to bless Abraham, to bless uh, many through him, to make his name great, to make him into a great nation, um, and of how God um, honoured that promise. So now that it had happened, she already had the proper context imprinted on her mind that what was happening to her was happening to her as part of her nation. Not because she was individually special, but because of God's faithfulness to his promises. What happened to her was unique, but that would help her to see herself in the but this would help her to see herself in the right perspective. That she was part of God's dealings with her nation, its election, its history, its destiny. And this no doubt sustained her faith. I think that's what we see in the song here. And at the same time as the mother, uh, and at the same time as the mother of the Son of God, it kept her from any exaggerated self of, of uh, exaggerated sense of self-importance. And by pointing out that she was part of something bigger that God was doing in the world, she can help our faith too. See. Mary praises God not because he's the God who will bring her personal success. Christianity is not a self-help and private kind of religion. And it's not one of many religious options that you might choose from. It's not something just between you and God and aimed at your own personal satisfaction. Mary praises God because he's changed the nature of the world outside of her. God has acted in history. And Luke carefully gives us an account of these things that have been fulfilled so we can be sure of that, that God has radically changed every person's relationship with him through this child, the Son of God. 
Um, you can receive him and the welcome of the Father, or you can ignore him and lose all hope. Uh, Christmas, and I must say today, Christmas in July, <laughs> um, is about that time in God's purposes where God has acted outside of us in history, sending his son. And because of what God has done, everyone faces a moment of crisis in relationship with God. He sent, maybe Christmas in July is good for this reason, because it's not just the baby in the manger, is he? He sent the King of Kings. He sent the Lord of Lords. He sent the one who will judge all people on God's terrible day of judgment. A final scattering of the proud that Mary sunk sung off. And only those who trust in Jesus will stand on that day and enter into his eternal kingdom. With the coming of Jesus, um, you must choose this day whom you serve. We hate that. We hate being accountable to the one true God who made us for, for how we live our lives. It's not, it's not basic to our nature. Christianity is not about me. Mary's not singing about the change that happens inside of her. She sings about what's happened outside of her, about what God has done in history. And then what happens inside of her, her spirit rejoicing in God, her saviour, is because of what happened out there in history of God fulfilling his promises, fulfilling his purposes um, for the world. So what have we seen? What have we seen today? Um, that Mary and Zechariah um, praise God that with the coming of Jesus, um, God has come to save his people, to show mercy, to fulfil promises made long ago, and they rejoice in exuberant praise um, to God. We, of course, have even more reason for exuberant praise, for we know the climax of Luke's story of the gospel, that mercy was shown to us sinners by Jesus dying for us and on the third day being raised to life. And I wonder if, like Mary and Zechariah, your spirit rejoices in God because you know how much you need a saviour. I wonder if, like Mary, God's mercy has humbled you as you recognise your need. That's something to recognise not just when we first become a Christian, but that's something we need to recognise every day of our lives as we, live, as we live as Christians, our neediness for the mercy of God. Our pride stops us from seeing that need. But Mary and Zechariah knew they belonged to a people who needed the Son of God to come and to mercifully save them from their sins, to bring forgiveness. And I reckon one of the reasons that Luke includes these songs of Mary and Zechariah and not just the narrative is to encourage us um, to start and continue a growing pattern in our lives. And, it's, and the pattern is this. It's very simple. It's a pattern for adults and for children. Um, we do it by ourselves and we do it with others. We read a part of Luke's Gospel or one of the other Gospels or another part of the Bible and then we don't just put the Bible down and move on to the next thing in the day like a lovely meal that's been served up for you and not like a drive through takeaway, we take our time, we chew it over and we take it in. And we take in what something that Mary says in her song, that when God saves us, he's filled 
the hungry with good things and the humble are lifted up. Um, that is, we realise something even when it doesn't feel like it. Um, even in shame or deep disappointment, even in sadness or even circumstances that feel very ordinary or maybe feel very hopeless. We realise that if we know Christ, that he is sufficient. That if I have Christ, I have all I need. I can be at peace. I can be content in my inner being when I'm saved. And then we respond to what God has done like Mary and Zechariah did. We can do that in prayer or in song. We hear the story of how he moved towards us to save us. And then that moves us to respond to him with joy and praise, um, with love and obedience to God. We respond like Mary did. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour.